This is Code Severe, a podcast series revealing the inside story of terrorist attacks from the files of UK counterterrorism police, as told by the officers, witnesses, and the terrorists themselves. Hi everyone, uh, today's experiment is with HMTD or hexamethylene triperoxidine. These are the matter-of-fact words of Andrew, a 19-year-old self-radicalized terrorist, as he practiced making the bombs he was to use in a crowded Bristol shopping center. No one heard the explosion coming from his quiet suburban flat. He was a lone operator, unknown to the authorities. This is the story of how he slipped through the cracks. Some names are withheld for security reasons. Everything else is true. On a crisp spring day in April, ordinary people went about their shopping, totally unaware that Andrew was also there, making detailed notes on his phone about the layout of the centre. He wrote, entrance to paying area, three, lifts, four, food court, dense area. I asked retired Detective Superintendent Nigel Rock and investigating officer Matthew Idden what the notes meant. He's done a hostile reconnaissance of a shopping centre. He'd identified that the food court was a dense area. It, it, it's full of families, husbands and wives, children, um, groups of young friends, drinking coffee, relaxing, um, enjoying the day. He intended to blow himself up there. He'd actually... Um made notes about the crowded locations. He'd timed his distances between different um, uh, areas on different floors in that shopping centre, almost as if he was going to set a, an initial explosion off which would encourage a mass evacuation uh, where perhaps he would be waiting to, to, to blow himself up and there'd be more people gathered there. Except for the CCTV cameras silently saving his movements to their archives, Andrew passed unnoticed. A young man scouting a mall is perhaps an imperceptible sign to spot. But the truth is, it was already one of many cracks Andrew had slipped through. Because even at this stage of his plan, he was still unknown to the police. We, the police, knew nothing about him. He was completely unknown and not on any security service radar. No one knows exactly why or how Andrew, a public schoolboy from a loving home, turned to violent extremism. But to his friends and family, he seemed to be a vulnerable young man, constantly searching for somewhere to belong. Because of the nature of this case, you will now hear an actor voicing the words of a friend. I suppose Andrew was always one of those obsessive kind of guys. He got into his bodybuilding and, he, you know, he just wouldn't let go. And then he got into the party scene. He was always going through some phase or other. As Andrew tried to find his way in the world, it seems he stumbled into the dark corners of the web. <laughs> Nigel Rock has a clear idea of what happened. I almost see it as the computer radicalised Andrew Ibrahim and his own inquisitiveness started him down a path that then set him on um, the course to uh, cause harm. Abdul Hai, former counter-terrorism police officer, explains how hate tightens its grip. 
If you look at Daesh's uh, websites they produce, it's all very slick and very professional, you see. And it's also designed in order to make it look attractive to the target audience they're having. The ability to be able to uh, feed into the, the vulnerability and so on. I guess it's not that different from how drug dealers start to recruit young children. It was at this point, some of his friends began noticing a change in Andrew. He began articulating violent views. They dismissed it as another one of Andrew's phases. But one person had taken notice. A visiting biology lecturer. I'd gone into college to give a lecture to um, some A-level students about microbiology, just to make it seem a bit more exciting, to have a real scientist there. He was asking me which sort of different bacteria could be used to kill people. So it was a fairly long conversation, but there were quite specific questions that, um, that he was asking me, and I just really evaded giving the answers. Almost immediately, I thought, well, this is just a bit of an odd thing to ask someone. It was at that point that I thought it was prudent to report what I'd heard to the management of the college. At the time, they didn't do anything further with that. It's hard to know what would have changed if a call had been made. Perhaps Andrew could have chosen a different path. I think it is a, it is a much harder call if you know somebody, but the benefits of an early report are far greater. Mark Rowley, the man who leads National Counterterrorism Policing, thinks so. I think it's tragic when you see a young person who has been drawn into terrorism and ends up being arrested and prosecuted and spending a large part of their life in prison. If that had been spotted earlier on, we could have stepped in in a preventative way, and I'd much rather we collectively intervene then, and that person lives a fruitful life. Whereas, as I say, and I can't apologise for this, if we end up in the stage where they're planning to kill people, then that's a much, much sadder outcome than if we can get in there earlier on and prevent that wicked influence. But there was no early call for Andrew. And having slipped through one crack, the intensity of his radicalization increased. Matthew Idden tells us what was happening. He took interest in particular individuals who had conducted suicide attacks around the world, like the 7-7 bombings, and researched the biographies of those people that had conducted those attacks. We know he'd progressed to researching how to uh, manufacture explosives, uh, and he spent hours and hours on end um, researching that on the internet and viewing really horrific uh, videos of attacks taking place um, on civilians around the world. He then went out to the shopping centre and we know he conducted detailed timing runs. And then we know that he went straight back home and continued to browse how he could manufacture a suicide belt. So it's very clear what his thought process was. While Andrew got lost in the web, he was increasingly airing his new beliefs out in the world. In a chemistry class, he scribbled something in a friend's notebook. It was in our chemistry lesson. He wrote some equations in my workbook and he told me that he could make bombs from air dye and nail polish remover and, and that he'd found it out on the internet. I tore the page out. Much later, experts were able to examine the notebook for an imprint of the torn out page. They found the detailed equation. It was the blueprint for a bomb. It was just one of the clues he began leaving, like pieces of a scattered jigsaw puzzle. But as Nigel Rock explains, no one had started putting them together yet. 
I think there were other examples where opportunities were missed. Um, he spoke to some of his classmates, and one classmate in particular, um, he actually said in the shopping centre, what would happen if a bomb went off in here? Um, he was walking through um, Bristol again with some college friends, and there were some um, ladies giving flyers away for free beer, and he made comments of this is a dirty cesspit of a country. With no one noticing or calling in, he remained completely unknown to the police. And he took a decisive step. Chillingly, he started to shop. Matthew Idden retraces his steps. We know that he got a shopping list together. Um, he knew what he'd wanted. He's actually with some friends when he'd gone out and bought some solid fuel blocks from a camping shop. He'd gone out and bought some citric acid from a uh, food store, and he'd given them spurious reasons for doing that. He'd been to model shops, he'd tried to uh, purchase rocket systems, he'd actually bought shrapnel from ball bearings from those shops. He kept them in a bag in his bedroom. Uh, and then we know he'd progressed to actually buying on three or four different occasions hydrogen peroxide as part of the uh, process for manufacturing the high explosive. A counter-terror explosive unit officer familiar with the case, we'll call him Andy, told me about the devastating effects this kind of bomb can have. The perpetrator chose to use um, a very, very sensitive high explosive, um, very much a, a shattering effect. It detonates between about six and 8,000 metres per second. It has a lot more devastating effect in the immediate area. People in close proximity may die instantly. Some of them may survive for a short amount of time. Some may survive with horrific, life-changing injuries. You're probably going to get the body, unfortunately, explosively separated. So it's very much like running things through with a sledgehammer. We also know that he had uh, uh, bought needles and threads. He had spent time trying to um, sew together a garment. We found the first unsuccessful garments discarded in his room, but he'd been successful on a second occasion. He had actually sewn together a suicide vest with arm straps, and that was hanging on the back of his door in his bedroom. We might think someone, somewhere, would have called, but Andrew, in Nigel Rock's view, was no fool. He had a, a certain amount of um, what I would call tradecraft. He was going around acquiring all the items you need to make a viable device in a secretive way. And so he slipped through another crack. He was getting close now, refining his bombs and beginning to blow them up in his flat. And a question arises, how is it no one heard? Matthew Idden, he had um, a lot of equipment set up in his, in his flat uh, and we know that he played music extremely loudly. We believe that um, his, it was the volume of the music that masked the sound of that um, test explosion taking place. But, although no one heard it, something had gone wrong. <laughs> he miscalculated the size of the blast and shards of glass had cut up his hands and feet. He was not a particularly skilled chemist. Bomb disposal expert Andy explains. It's very much kitchen chemistry. In this case, he was actually very, very lucky. Um, in the past, we have had bomb makers who've killed themselves actually manufacturing homemade explosives. A hand 
riddled with cuts and burn marks. Easily missed, but someone noticed. And this time, they decided to act. But the officer the man called was on holiday. Hello. Thankfully, Michael, which is not his real name, picked up the phone. At the time, I was away on holiday. Um, I was, in fact, I was on a, a, a sort of a canal boat trip with friends uh, in, in Derbyshire. It was about 10 o'clock in the evening. We'd, uh, we'd moored up for the evening. We'd just been to a, a local pub for uh, something to eat and a couple of drinks, and we're walking back towards the boat when suddenly I, I got this phone call, and it was from a, from a person that I had quite a bit of contact with over the previous few months um, in my role as a community engagement officer. The very first piece of information um, was an officer took a call from a member of uh, the community, uh, a member of the Islamic community in Bristol, um, to say that they were concerned about this individual. Um, about 10 minutes later it would have been, we are actually back to the boat and um, sat down just getting ready really to, to get into bed when he rung me back again. Um, and he said, oh, I'm, he said, I'm afraid, he said, I, I don't think it can wait until the morning. So I said, oh, you know, why, why do you think that? You know, what's happened? They had some concerns about this person um, as they felt that um, he had some sort of chemical burns to his hand. He only knew this person by his first name of, of Isa. We will never know who this unsung hero of the Muslim community was. His identity is protected, and rightly so. But thanks to him, the police now had a name. Isa. That might seem like the wrong name. It took about 36 hours to actually establish that his name was Andrew Ibrahim. At the beginning of his journey to violent extremism, Andrew had changed his name to Isa. And while the police were working out his real identity, Andrew was rapidly moving to the endgame. So one of the key things uh, in this investigation, we established that he was in receipt of social security benefit. Um, and he'd actually told the benefit agency that he had no intention to claim beyond the end of that month. If this admission to the benefits agency wasn't bad enough, he'd also begun downloading the living wills of suicide bombers. Now the time has come for you to be destroyed, so you have nothing but to expect. Nigel Rock tells us the significance of this. Now, that traditionally is what a lot of suicide bombers will make and film before they go out and commit the attack. Volcano of anger and revenge erupting amongst your capital. In terms of public protection and community safety, if this is as bad as it could be, we can't afford not to act. Very fascinating. Good evening. He was planning a terror attack in his home city that could have maimed and killed many, many people. In this, 
unassuming flat in this unassuming street, he assumed the role of a terrorist martyr. He amassed an armory of explosives. A homemade Within an hour or so of, of Issa being arrested, a team of specialist search officers went into his flat. When I attend a, a scene of uh, a suspected device or we have to clear an area which contains a bomb or explosives material, the first thing we look for is public safety. They evacuated all the neighbours, uh, officers uh, went into the flat and it soon became very apparent that there was so much of the high explosive powder scattered about the flat that as they walked through the kitchen, it was actually crackling underneath their feet. There were traces of uh, high explosive all over kitchen services that you could actually see and it soon became very, very clear that uh, actually his kitchen was more of an explosive manufacturing laboratory than it was a kitchen in the traditional sense of the word. It was discovered that within his fridge was a biscuit box, the, the rich tea family pack-sized biscuit box that contained homemade explosives. Our teams uh, went in there, the bomb disposal took the biscuit tin of a high explosive out of the flat they wanted to do a controlled explosion, so they put sandbags and containment around the biscuit tin and brought in a robotic device to firstly open the lid of the tin and see what was in it. This explosive is so volatile that the, the, the vibration set off the uh, quantity of high explosive in that tin, blew it up completely, and there was debris scattered for literally hundreds of yards all around. I'll take you through now to the kitchen again. A very, very small room indeed. This, all of the items have been taken away. Police, experts, forensic officers looking for traces of explosives. We sent off hundreds of items from this flat to the laboratory so uh, they could test and give evidence about what the substances were. Now, one of these items uh, was just a teaspoon that was found in the kitchen. Um, when that was received in the lab. They immediately saw there was some white powder on it. They shut the lab down, called in the bomb disposal people, uh, and they uh, identified that there was enough high explosive on the spoon to blow that lab up. The high explosive used in this case is powerful enough to remove limbs with just a few grams. Uh, you know, even a small amount of that explosive could cause a significant explosion. Something the size of maybe a, a pea clenched inside the hand, then you're likely to lose the hand altogether. Now here at home, a 20-year-old student from Bristol has been sentenced to life imprisonment for plotting to blow himself up using his own suicide vest and homemade explosives. Andrew Issa Ibrahim was convicted earlier today of preparing to carry out the attack on the shopping centre in Bristol. Well, our uh, correspondent Alison Harper is at... We didn't know anything about Issa Ibrahim until that member of the public had the courage to, to contact us. Patterns emerge. Things make sense in hindsight. Actions take on meaning when they sit alongside other actions. We can ask ourselves, looking over this case, when and where we would have acted, if at all. It's a difficult question to answer. But Protective Security Policing Coordinator for Counterterrorism Policing, Lucy Dorsey, knows the value of a call. So I suppose right now, today, there are hundreds of people, probably thousands of people, that don't really know, but actually they're, they're alive, they're safe, 
because somebody called us and somebody's worked with us, somebody's, somebody's, somebody trusted their instinct and shared some information with us. And most importantly, it's as simple as picking up the phone. Senior National Coordinator for Counterterrorism Policing, Neil Basu. And calling 999, calling 101, confidentially calling the anti-terrorist hotline, and that's 0800 789 321. Or reporting something online at gov.uk slash act. You can do all of that without leaving your name, and you're making a major contribution to keeping your country safe. Mark Rowley, the National Counterterrorism Policing Lead and the man who ultimately sifts through the noise, looking for the signals. I found it interesting recently, looking at our current caseload, in a third of those operations, we've had members of the public give us information. And I want to ask people, if they see something that looks wrong, don't worry, don't delay, just act. The nature of the terrorist threat now, the way terrorist groups overseas can reach into communities from across the world using the internet. That's different. The sort of the secrecy of the old terrorist groups of Al-Qaeda or the IRA was very different to this almost open source terrorism. So that reach into communities changes the nature of our business and makes the role of communities more important than ever. However much we can be on patrol and as visible as we try to be, it's never the same as that street seen through that local resident's eyes or that shopping centre seen through that shop worker's eyes or behaviour of a person in the community seen through a, a sort of a friend or an associate's. Perhaps it's right the last word should go to Andrew Ibrahim, the man who came so close to causing untold devastation, but for a single call. From prison, he said... I urge people not to rely on the internet and those who seek to draw people into their ideology of hate, something I was unfortunately taken in by. You've been listening to Code Severe, Hostile Reconnaissance. In this instance, we're talking about a 600-kilogram bomb uh, that's going to explode in and around a crowded nightclub. The blast wave's going to hit you. Somewhere in the region of about two to 3,000 metres per second. To hear multiple bombings, the next in the series, search Code Severe. News footage supplied courtesy of BBC, Sky News and ABC.